0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
2: it is a combination of, yes, your aesthetic and how you're presenting yourself. But I think it's also, are you answering your email? Are you following up with people? Are you, do you even have an email app on your phone? Like how many unread emails do you have? It's it's kind of being more organized. And it's really just about being professional and some of the fundamentals of being a professional creative, mm-hmm. because and I wrote this chapter specifically because I've worked with artists for almost 20 years and I love them dearly, but these are some of the things that they completely lack oh. <laughs> is some basic fundamentals. Like, and it's understandable. No one teaches this really in school. They don't teach you how to make eye contact and shake someone's hand. Mm-hmm. And I think those are really fundamental things that if you're trying to represent yourself, and you don't have, you know, an agent or a manager, or you're just getting started, you need to know some of these principles and these basics mm. overall. So yeah. I think your personal brand is really how you are coming off as a professional overall. And that your creative brand is, you know, definitely the work you're doing, but how you're setting yourself apart from.
0: Heidi, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your story because you wrote in and told me a bit about the work that you do and this amazing community of artists that you have built. Uh, And I thought, yeah, this is kind of a no brainer. It's right up our alley. (laughs) But before we get into your work, um, I want to start by asking what I think is an interesting question, given that I got to read about it on your bio. And that is, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing who you've become and what you've done with your life?
2: Oh, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> um, my mom was a florist and she is a very creative being. I would say that she was my first kind of like art and creativity teacher um, in the sense that, you know, she wasn't classically trained, but it was something that she was really interested in and she taught me how to craft and sew and paint and draw. So she was more kind of the creative of the the family, but her career was really floristry, Um, which when she got pregnant with me at the ripe age of 20, she kind of had to give up, unfortunately. Um, And then she had three more Luera kids after that. So she wasn't really, she, she went back to it once we were grown, but for the most part, my mom was a stay at home mom.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, my dad was a musician and worked in various, various fields through construction and things of that nature. So very, um, I grew up in less than a middle-class household for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the resilience and persistence that you need when you don't have, you know, the comfy financial means that maybe other families have kind of develops um, from that environment. So I'll say that that's really maybe there are kind of general. I don't want to say poverty, <laughs> but, uh, you know, partially Um has for sure shaped me as an entrepreneur and as a creative, Um, but they were both creative people. My dad is an amazing musician. He plays the the drums, he sings, he plays piano and guitar, you know, again, and then my mom is very creative. So the, the combination of kind of growing up around this art, but not a lot of financial stability. Mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, definitely molded me into the person I am.
0: (laughs) So I think that that is really fascinating because you have two parents who are creatives and you also didn't grow up with, uh, you know, like you said, financial stability. So I wonder what right. was the message that your parents gave you about making your way in the world? Did they give you any particular career advice based on their financial situation? And also you mentioned three other siblings. Like, What are they like? Yeah. Are they, are they sort of creative artistic types or did they go and choose practical paths because of the environment you guys grew up in?
2: Yeah. Um, so my parents are actually divorced, and I think that the two people that instilled the most kind of work ethic, business ethic into me have been my step-parents, actually. Uh, so they're kind of like the polar opposite of my actual biological parents. Um, but my stepmom was in computer engineering, um, and she taught me to type at a very young age. I definitely owe her my... My uh, ability to be somewhat tech savvy. <laughs> um, she started me very young, whereas I don't think I would have had that opportunity if my parents were still together. They, both of them, still to this day, can <laughs> barely operate their iPhone. Um, so that was, I was really fortunate there, and my stepmom was also my first kind of investor. Um, she kind of saw the entrepreneurial spirit in me at a young age, at around ten. And encouraged me when I wanted to have a lemonade stand. And she, she went to the store with me and for $14.98, <laughs> bought all the ingredients that I needed to have a lemonade stand on the weekends. Um, but I needed to pay her back with interest. And she instilled that message in me um, from, from a young age. And then my stepdad is a very hard worker. He was involved in real estates and also kind of could build a, his a house with his bare hands. Um, very hard worker and understood and still understands. Like I can have conversations with him about deep business practices and employees and things of that nature. So I would say I love my parents, all of all four of them, <laughs> but my, my step parents were really the ones that instilled any kind of business um, business acumen into me at a at a young age, and mm-hmm. and largely by kind of leading by example and just watching what they did, you know, mm-hmm. and watching how hard they worked. Um, as far as my siblings are concerned, um, they're all creative, kind of in their own right, but for the most part, um, I have a brother who is. And he went to culinary school, but he is into fine dining restaurant management. I have another brother who's in computer programming. Um, And basically, he actually works for my company and he works on our website and kind of proprietary code. Um, And then my sister is an amazing creative, but she's in the medical field. So between all three of them... um, Yeah, I guess we all have like, you know, culinary arts coding is actually very creative. And then, but my sister maybe is the odd one out, but she can sing like an angel. So (laughs) none of us got that gene except for her. She's an amazing musician. So, yeah.
0: So I wonder from from growing up in such a large family, you know, four kids is By my definition, large, but that's because that's twice the size of my family. But I think most people would would agree that four people, you know, four siblings is a big family. I wonder what you learn about human relationships and social dynamics that have uh, that's influenced your life later, and in terms of how you work with people now.
2: Oh my God, so much! I'm the oldest of four, so I think that a lot of my natural leadership ability came from. Kind of managing those three <laughs> from an early age, if I can call it that. I was, of course, naturally bossy kid, and I was always the one that had to be responsible for all three of them. If we went to go play somewhere, do something, um, I think it also not having, kind of bleeding into your previous question, not having a ton of financial means to have this, you know, entertainment um, type of household at a young age we invented a lot of our own games and um, it, it allowed us to kind of be creative and more resourceful. So I think having those three as kind of an audience mm-hmm. <laughs> and or people that would listen to me, I mean, I did I made them do crazy things <laughs> when we were little kids. I used to dress uh, them up in, in different wares from my closet and, take my sister's karaoke machine and throw fashion shows in the living room um, announcing what they were wearing. So yeah, I, it's really funny. I was always the ringleader. I mean, we played, you know, director and all of those things. So I think some of the things you play when you're young are truly who you are. Um, But I think it's a combination of, I, I definitely learned different personalities how to kind of tell, you know, if somebody is upset, if somebody is hurt, if somebody is excited. Um, And I think when there are so many, because there were four of us, because there was three others in addition to me, there was, yeah, definitely an impact on kind of understanding How humans tick in different types of personalities and different types of, you know, I know what foods my brothers don't like and that my sister will eat, but this brother won't like, I don't know, it's, it's, and I think that bleeds into leadership Um, as you grow, you work with different personalities and it teaches you to be very aware and pay attention Um, to some of those social cues, whereas somebody that had a much smaller family or was an only child, I think sometimes doesn't have that opportunity.
0: Mm, Wow. So I think one of the things that's really interesting to me about your story is despite having grown up without a lot of money, you still decided to pursue a career path that is incredibly uncertain in which nothing is guaranteed. And uh, not that I think anything is guaranteed in any career path, but this is obviously one that comes with high risk. I know this because you and I are both in creative careers where you're constantly Mm -hmm. having to spend your life explaining to people that, yes, this is a real job. Yes, I get paid to do this. And (laughs) no, it doesn't come with a paycheck uh, steadily. So, and, And I think for people who don't you know, have that model of the world, it's incredibly difficult for them to wrap their heads around it. I know this because my parents were like, Oh, we'd like to introduce you to some, you know, girls. And like, they're like, yeah, like <laughs> what, you know, what are you going to tell their parents about what I do? And my mom was like, yeah, well, let's not make these introductions. Uh, so <laughs> that, you know, and, and the thing is, I, I was like, yeah, I don't want you to do that because it's, it's hard to explain. So I wonder as somebody who had sort of that financial experience, uh, and still chose to do. What do you think enabled that? Like, why is it that you still chose to do that? Uh, and and you know, what is it that has led you to where you're at today?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's like a small amount of being comfortable with chaos. <laughs> because, and I talk to my husband about this all the time. He had a completely different situation than me. He wasn't. He didn't grow up in a family that was you know, wealthy, but they were middle-class and they had a completely different situation financially and stable, stability wise. Um, And he's like, you know, I think you're just kind of comfortable in chaos. And I think that's kind of what the entrepreneurial journey is to a certain extent. It's, it's kind of organizing that chaos. And I've never, I think because some of the things that I have faced in my life and the different traumas that I've had from either not just financial, but just, you know, general living of life, um, you kind of learn to put things in perspective. So, and I feel because I'm this, you know, bossy leader chick, I can pretty much control my own destiny. And I know that ultimately what it just takes, the only thing that it truly takes is hard work and continuing to do that hard work and wising up as you go through uh, different types of levels and stumbling blocks and things of that nature. So it's never really felt that chaotic to me because I felt in control of my own future and it was either going to turn out as good or as bad as I wanted it to based on how much attention and energy and effort I was putting into it. Mm. But I think I'm also just kind of comfortable in situations probably due to my upbringing <laughs> where yeah. it seems like everything else is on fire, <laughs> but like, this isn't a big deal compared to other things. You know, I'm still breathing. The people I love are still alive. It, you know, it could be much worse right now. Mm-hmm. So there's always a solution. There's always a, um, yeah, there's not a, It's not a problem if there's not a solution is Hmm. the way that I kind of look at it. Um,
0: That ability to sort of, you know, live in organized chaos or make order out of anarchy. Do you think that people can learn that? And if so, what are the keys to doing that?
2: Oh, man. I don't know. I I think people can learn it, um, but I think that they only learn it by going through it. Mm-hmm. Um, by, by stumbling, I don't know that there's a textbook that's going to teach you how to organize your life and think more uh, almost spiritually about, um, obstacles and challenges. I think the only way that I've ever learned anything is from failing and falling flat on my face, you know, and having to claw my way back out of that type of situation and kind of coming to terms and reckoning with it, or it's like, okay, I was so afraid of, X, Y, and Z happening. But now that it's happened, it's not half as bad as I thought it was going to be. And and I've got this, you know, I think that's really what drives a lot of people um, is fear more than faith. Mm -hmm. And I think that is some, the root of a lot of creatives problems, you know, with self-doubt and not kind of rising to the occasion or putting in the work or self-educating. Um, it really just stems from fear more than faith in themselves. Hmm.
0: So you said something uh, earlier about the fact that you felt that you were in control of your own destiny. And I think that this is a very interesting phrase because I've thought a lot about control, particularly when it comes to creative work. Uh, One thing I think I've learned from 10 years of doing this is that so often we are not in control of the outcome, only the process. And yet we primarily set outcome-based goals. And as somebody who just said, you know, you believe you're controlling your own destiny, I just, I I have to kind of throw that over to you and see what you have to say about that. Like, how do you, how do you have those two things coexist?
2: Sure. Um, I, I feel, and maybe it's my own kind of like self masochistic (laughs) little twinge or something, but I always feel if something goes wrong in our organization, Ultimately, me as the founder and CEO, it's my responsibility, right? Like I might've put a manager in place to handle something or hired this person to take care of this specific aspect. And I feel often that I'm not, I'm in control enough to put that person in place, to manage them, to check them. And if something went wrong, I probably didn't do all that I could. And I kind of know that inside, right? <laughs> like I know that, that feeling. Now, putting out creative work, I think, is, you're right. Like you're in control of the process and having self-discipline to finish something, to get something completed, and you put it out in the world. And yeah, you have zero clue how people are going to react to it. But I think you can be in control of strategically putting it in front of the right people. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that you're completely 100% at the mercy of the rest of the world once an art piece or a creative work is out mm-hmm. in the world. There are definitely ways to, uh, to strategically get it in front of the right people sooner or <laughs> before anyone else sees it. You know, yeah. And I think I've watched different artists or different types of productions or entertainment do that. I've I've watched movies that are critically acclaimed that are just, you know, pieces of shit, really. (laughs) So I think that there's a game to that, too. So I I still feel like there's there's always something you can do. And I think a lot of people sometimes, I, I guess I'm generalizing here with a lot of people, but I've often come across people that, kind of use that as an excuse for not doing all they can. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, like I've, I've at point worked myself into the ground, <laughs> you know, making sure that I can do all I can. Yeah. Um, and right. there's, there's a limit to that too. Yeah, there's no longevity and there's not sustainability in that. So that's, that's also what I mean about kind of like wising up as you learn more to mm-hmm. so fall through these different stumbling blocks.
0: Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I think about this from the standpoint of writing books, you know, I, I mean, it, like an author can do everything. I mean, we hired a book marketing firm who was excellent. They'd put numerous books on the New York Times bestseller list. I executed the plan. And yeah. And then on the flip side, it's like you said, you know, you have critically acclaimed movies that aren't great, but uh, they still end up somehow striking a chord. And it's, it's one of those things. I think that there's a sort of I like, you know, Danny Shapiro said, like, some books have this sort of magic fairy dust, you know, that basically, I mean, I think part of it is there is this idea of, okay, I think what it comes down to is focusing on what you can control and letting go of what you don't.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Um, I just put out my book, what, in September, mid-September, and I worked really hard on it for a really long time. And this is my first book. I don't know. I didn't know what I was doing (laughs) whatsoever, but I, but I kind of relished in that. I self published it um, purposefully because I didn't want to be too modified or edited or filtered. And at a certain, and I've, you know, marketed, I feel I have a pretty good understanding of marketing and how to kind of push it out there. And I, there's still definitely more that I can be doing, But it's exceeded my expectations as far as how well it's been received and even the sales and, you know, all of that. Um, But ultimately, yeah, it's at a certain point, I'm just going to have to let it go and let it be and let it live in the world. And if people are interested and want to read it, I think the other thing, you know, with books and work is they they have a long shelf life. Mm -hmm. For the most part, you put something out there and... You know, no pun intended on the book, but you put something out there and it takes, sometimes it takes people a while to buy it, read it, like it, and then recommend it. I mean, we we live in a world of, you know, uh, word of mouth and people taking other people's opinions as um, more important than some of the ratings even they see online, you know, mm-hmm. friends and, and family. So I think it... I think it also can take time. And I think that's totally fine with creative work. Yeah. Allow it to just unfold as it will.
0: Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about the book and some of the ideas in it. Uh, but talk to me about raw, like how, how did this come about? What is the sort of mission of what you guys do? Um, you know, what was the motivation by behind why you chose to do this?
2: Yeah. So I was, I'm originally from Northern California where I lived with that big family. (laughs) We were talking about, Um, I wanted to be a fashion designer since I was seven that I can recall, um, again, throwing fashion shows in my living room with my sister's karaoke machine. And I really, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I used to create, um, I used to design every day after school and I knew that, um, when I was 18, after I graduated high school that I would be moving to Los Angeles. So three months after graduation, that's exactly what I did. I moved here to go to fashion school. I started my own clothing line before I even started fashion school, um, and tried to sell it anywhere that I could, um, anywhere that would give me a space to pop up. Now being new to LA, and not really knowing anyone whatsoever. I did a lot of the wrong things and went to a lot of the wrong places. Um, But the only place that I could find at the time that had kind of space for rent that seemed approachable was uh, swap meet. So I popped up at swap meets for about a year and realized that this is this was just not a sustainable thing. I was barely selling anything, barely selling anything to break even. It wasn't really my demographic. Um, so, and I also had friends that were in bands. I started meeting new people. I mean, LA is very rich with, um, you know, the <laughs> creative culture. So I met fellow fashion designers, etc., And we... All kind of shared the same sentiment that there wasn't really an approachable entity to go to to showcase our our work. Um, so I decided to take matters into my own hands and host a showcase that would be just fashion, music, and art, just for me and my friends, as kind of a big marketing push to where we could sell our clothing or our art and perform for a larger audience. We all pitched in a little bit of money. We all kind of promoted it, and I directed it while also having my my clothing line in the show, and I had zero clue <laughs> what I was doing. Again, totally fine with Controlled Chaos, and kind of made it happen. Um, we had 750 people show up and didn't even, again, understand that that was... Good or that this is you know a positive thing. I wasn't expecting there to be another show. Um, this was just meant to be a one-time gig, and I poured my life into it for several months. So I was quite exhausted at that point. But I had people coming up to me, kind of in droves, asking when the next one would be explaining to me that their cousin's brother's girlfriend had a clothing line that I needed to see. And I quickly kind of became this person that was now vetting all of these, you know, creatives in the area that wanted to be a part of this platform. And I think I realized I found this gaping hole in the creative community where there wasn't this kind of cool, young, hip opportunity to showcase work. Um, So that's kind of how it started. It started from my own personal need to uh, want to showcase and sell direct to consumer. I didn't really want to go and nor did I feel ready for or could really fulfill big box retail or anything of that nature. I just wanted to go direct to the person that would be buying it. And mind you, this is 2005. Mm -hmm. So there is like, there isn't Instagram. There wasn't Facebook. Maybe Facebook was maybe just starting, like a year or two after that. So there wasn't social media. There wasn't a way to kind of gather community. There was MySpace, uh-huh. but I don't. People weren't really using that for sales <laughs> that I knew of. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I went. That's that's how it started.
0: Small details are big surfaces. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's
1: plushcare.com/weightloss.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes
2: until you try them on. Same goes for health care. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. I guess the first question I have about this is, you know, I, I I was wondering about the timing and you kind of teed that up for me. So, you know, this was pre-social media and I think there are a lot of pros and cons that have come from social media. Uh, I personally think the cons are more significant <laughs> the more time I spend on it, that, you know, we're yeah. valuing attention more than we are accomplishment. But I think the thing that's interesting about what you've created is that there's this incredibly collaborative aspect to it that all these people came together and yet, it's funny, in an age in which we're incredibly connected to each other, when we could do this, we are far more driven by self than we are community. Uh mm-hmm. like I, I think this would I ironically, I think despite the fact that you have the tools and you know, the connections to to do it today, uh, probably much faster and much easier. I think the sort of self-obsessed nature of people on the internet, and you know, I'm not like I'm not you know, I myself included uh, in that. Uh, I think would make this harder, and I, I wonder, you know, as somebody who did this pre-social media, what you think about that?
2: Yeah, I actually I think that people are coming around, and there's going to be. An exodus from social media, not a hundred percent, but I think there's going to be something. There's something on the horizon. That's how I personally feel about it, because I'm sick of it too. And it's unfortunately, it's a necessary thing that you have to do (laughs) in order to, you know, have a business and have a presence. And I do think that there's some, uh, like you said, there's positives and negatives to it. And the positives are, you know, our parents and their parents, they couldn't share their creative work or whatever they were doing with someone, you know, halfway around the world. And we can do that with social media and that makes the world much smaller. I think what we've created with raw is really special because it's kind of the antithesis of that. Sure. We have an online community and we're very active and we use Instagram and Facebook as a promotional tool to to share our artists work with our entire worldwide community. But Mm -hmm. Our showcases are—you're making real connections in front of people that are getting up and going somewhere <laughs> to view art, to view fashion, to see beauty, to see um, live music and hear live music. So, I think that it's actually a benefit, and we—that's one of the things that I tell our artists all the time. It's like you can showcase on Instagram and Facebook all day long. Sure, go for it. That's great but you don't know what someone truly thinks about your work or how they feel beyond that heart that they give you or that like that they give you. You can see it in someone's face when they're excited about what you're doing when you're in front of them, you know? And so like, don't, don't discredit, you know, these face-to-face opportunities because you think that social media is going to get you a further reach. It, It can, but you don't doubt analog <laughs> like analog is pretty pretty great and i think you know i think people are coming back to to wanting to create some actual human connection at least i hope so and i see some beginning signs of it and i think that's going to be a trend in the you near know,
0: future well i think that yeah i mean to me you know i say that we've learned to value reach over depth but in a noisy world where thousands of people are competing for your attention depth is much more valuable over the long haul like it's much more sustainable mm-hmm. to have a deep, meaningful connection with somebody than it is to have a short, shallow interaction. I mean, this is one of the reasons we banned social media and laptops at our upcoming conference uh, because I just I saw what a world of difference that makes when you don't have people in the room constantly looking at their phones. And I thought, you know, why on earth would you come to an event to meet people that you know from the internet to take pictures with them and upload those pictures to the internet? That's the <laughs> stupidest thing ever. Uh, right. It kind of defeats the purpose of being there, but. Uh, well, let's let's do this. Uh, let's get into the book. I think that the way that you organize this is really interesting, because I think you you talked about sort of you know, theoretical concepts, which you also gave as examples of people. And, you know, in the first three sections, you talked about where your work come from, comes from working on your personal mm-hmm. brand and, and working on your creative brand. Let's talk about this idea of where your work comes from, because I think that this is such a nebulous sort of idea for people. Uh, they're, you know, like, I, I, you know, I've often people come down, and tell me about an idea. and I'll say, great. Well, you know, and then they'll be like, okay, they'll ask me a bunch of questions. And I will say, look, I can't answer any of these questions, because what you're doing is asking me questions based on speculation. Um, you need to go do mm-hmm. something to get some real feedback. But, you know, I'd be curious right. kind of what you discovered about this.
2: As far as um, where we're Yeah, where your work comes from. So I think that a large part of it is something that's innate to you as an individual. Kind of as I was mentioning when I was a kid, I was throwing fashion shows. That's exactly what I'm doing like 25 years later (laughs) with my life and career. That's my creative work. Um, I think people don't pay enough attention to where their actual passion lies. And as we get older, we kind of trade our creativity and the, you know, the innate spark that's within us to create the things that we love to create for more practical things. And that's, you know, to a certain extent, understandable. But I think that chapter is really about discovering who you are and who you've always been and getting over kind of the self-doubt that we all struggle with. And remembering, you know, by looking at your old yearbooks, looking at your own work, your old work, you know, from school, what were you creating? What were you inspired by? to do? like, love dinosaurs? (laughs) Like, what, what was it that you were really drawn to before the rest of the world clouded your vision? And so I think that's that, what that chapter is about is really just kind of refinding your voice and making sure you're doing something that you're passionate about. And it was kind of interesting while writing this book too, I realized that before I wanted to be a fashion designer, I actually wanted to be a writer. I remember that was my third grade dream. (laughs) Um, And, or maybe even before that, but I remember writing these spiral bound notebooks that were super, you know, convoluted, very descriptive that my teachers hated grading. And so it, it, the book in writing that chapter was very kind of interesting because I kind of came back to some of my roots there too, where I was like, I really enjoyed writing when I was a kid. I was doing this before I, you know, fell in love with fashion or saw my first fashion book and took it home and never, you know, from the library, and never let anyone rent it for <laughs> a year. Um, so I think that's really, really ultimately what a creator needs to do is find that core and that thing that they're passionate about uh-huh. and learn to overcome any self doubt associated with it. Um, because I think it's already innately within everyone.
0: Mm. So you're talking about working on both your personal brand and your creative brand. And I want to, one, understand what the distinction is between the two, but I want to you know, talk to you about this whole personal brand idea, because I think there are two things that come to mind. One is, uh, Oprah, I remember, was interviewing Tom Brady, and she was talking about how like these teenage girls are like working, talking about working on their brand, and she's like, "Honey, you don't have a brand. Your brand comes from the work that you do." Um, and <laughs> yeah. I, I, remember, I wrote a post titled "Don't Build a Personal Brand; Develop Rare and Valuable Skills Instead," and that really seemed to have struck a chord because I, I that's some, something that I, I've realized is that people put a lot of effort into sort of this you know external appearance of doing something yet they don't put nearly as much effort into the work itself. And so, um, when you think about this whole idea of personal brand, like what does it look like to you and what is the difference between a creative brand and a personal brand?
2: Yeah. So I'll start with the difference, the difference between a creative brand and a personal brand to me. So creative brand to me is what you are actually creating and outputting. How does that look? How are you branding that? How are you marketing that? What are you doing or not doing? As far as personal brand is concerned, it is a combination of, yes, your aesthetic and how you're presenting yourself. But I think it's also, are you answering your email? Are you following up with people? Are you, do you even have an email app on your phone? Like how many unread emails do you have? It's, it's kind of being more organized and it's really just about being professional and some of the fundamentals of being a professional creative Mm -hmm. because And I wrote this chapter specifically because I've worked with artists for almost 20 years and I love them dearly, but these are some of the things that they completely lack (laughs) is some basic fundamentals. Like, and it's understandable. No one teaches this really in school. They don't teach you how to make eye contact and shake someone's hand. Mm -hmm. And I think those are really fundamental things that if you're trying to represent yourself, and you don't have, you know, an agent or a manager, or you're just getting started, you need to know some of these principles and these basics Mm. overall. So I think your personal brand is really how you are coming off as a professional overall and that your creative brand is, you know, definitely the work you're doing, but how you're setting yourself apart from Everyone else that's in your creative space.
0: Mm. It's funny that you've mentioned things like, you know, having email on your phone, because I don't specifically have email on my phone because I think it's a huge distraction. And I think that we spend way too much time on on sources of distraction. Um, I, I, so it's funny because I have mixed opinions about this. Like if I don't feel there's any reason to respond to an email, I won't. Um, because I I think sometimes it's like, okay, this is just creating unnecessary email. It's like, okay, this is not of any interest to me. Why would I respond to this? Um,
2: it, it, but you check it. Yeah. Right? I checked it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: I check it, but you know, like look, and we get lots of pitches for podcast guests. And you know, what, like saying no is kind of unnecessary in my mind. It's like, okay.
2: Right. Um,
0: and we, we have that on a contact form. It says, you know, due to the volume of pitches, you, you know, if, if we, you know, don't, you know, if you don't hear from us, it's unfor- unfortunately, we just can't, you know, I, I'd spend all day responding to to emails if I did that. Um, right. I, I, I get what you're saying in terms of being professional. Um, But I also want, you know, wonder where that, because I mean, we've had numerous guests here like, okay, this is not your work really, right? It's the things that support your work.
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just those fundamentals. So, I mean, I kind of look at it like the golden rule. I I try and treat people how I want to be treated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for you maybe, and I totally understand running a podcast, you've got tons of different emails coming in. Maybe you set something up to just click a button and send a, you know, decline email or something like you have not been selected. I'm so sorry. Just because I think in terms of that, that's what I would want to receive if I was applying to something rather than just kind of a, what happened? You know, that's, that's just how I personally view a personal brand. I like show up on time. If I can't be on time for something, I will let someone know I'm <laughs> like, I will. Th- and there's a lot of artists that just don't do this. Yeah. You know, I've, I've hired over the course of my business, 240 people. I have met lots of different personalities. Mm. Uh, I have 65 employees and most of them are creative. And this is stuff that we still have to go over. Yeah. You know, we still, have to talk about don't wear sweatpants to work <laughs> so I think that's that's why I wrote that chapter yeah. and why I thought it was important because it really is like how are you how are you displaying yourself how are you um how are you presenting yourself as a professional are you taking yourself seriously or are you taking yourself sloppy you know
0: yeah I hear you Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's do this. I want to talk about, I think probably what is one of the biggest sort of, um, like obstacles for almost any creative person. And that is the sort of intersection of both, uh, art and commerce, you know, selling your work, making money from your work, uh, I think that the, the funny thing is, I think there's so many people who are absolutely terrified of asking their audience for money. I, I had a friend who was a talented graphic designer, and she said, yeah, she's like, this is such a problem for me. I would rather go work at a restaurant and get as many tips as possible than ask somebody to pay me for my art. And like, <laughs> why? Yeah. I, you know, And so this is, I think part of this is psychological. Uh but I, I also think there's this sort of expectation of, of from an audience that we've conditioned people to receive things for free. And I remember I got a very irate email from somebody who said you're selling things for your email list. I'm like, yeah, we're running a business. We're well, yeah. selling things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I said, look, nobody says you have to buy them. But remember, the people who buy these things are subsidizing your ability to consume it for free. So right. don't you know, don't don't knock us. And I said, you know, like you wouldn't show up at your job if nobody gave you a paycheck. The expectation (laughs) that just because somebody does creative work for a living, they shouldn't get paid is insane. Um, Yet, I think this is a big struggle for most creatives.
2: Oh, my God. It's huge. And you're spot on. It's got to be like the number one issue. And especially that I hear from artists all the time. Um, We, our business is pretty much built on helping artists get over that. And it's still an uphill battle, you know, after 10 years, but it's getting better. I think there's gonna be a culture shift there as well. But yeah, creatives have such a tough time because it is such a balance. I think when we're creating something, it feels so in- natural and part of kind of very personal. And we don't know, it's uh, the art world is so weird in so many different aspects, you know, music, especially the whole you know, music landscape has changed. Art landscape has changed. It's like, how do you price it? Is this too much? Is this too low? And yeah, fundamentally, I don't even want to ask for money. I don't want to charge for this. I just want to give it away. And they, they're not, you know, valuing themselves. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. some of them are overvaluing themselves, (laughs) but Yeah. I think it's a really delicate balance. Um, and we've certainly faced, you know, our array of critics over the last 10 years. Who just don't think that artists should have to pay or do anything or put in any work to be showcased. And I just think that that's kind of a Pollyanna way of thinking, you know, it's, this is a business. If this is something you're serious about and you want to do, you are in yourself a business Mm -hmm. as a creator. Um, and you need to sustain yourself and you need to sharpen your skills and you need to learn certain things and you need to step outside your comfort zone and get comfortable with it. Otherwise, you're not really going to sustain yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a hobbyist and this is just something you do for fun and it brings you joy, great. That's perfect. Yeah. You know, stick with that. Then you don't have to ask anyone for money and you, you can keep working at the restaurant or, you know, pursuing other you know fields or get a job in the creative field and work your way up through a company in that in that way. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's completely to each their own yeah. but ultimately ultimately the way that I feel about it is that that nonsense has got to stop. Yeah. <laughs> like people have got to get over that hump and I understand because when I was just starting out as Both a fashion designer and in this creative business, it's scary, you know, but feel the fear and do it anyway. And it's gonna, you're gonna grow a new piece of yourself as an individual and as a business person that is also creative as you're starting it. You just have to, you have to sharpen that skill. Yeah.
0: So I mean, we talked about it from the standpoint of the creator themselves, but I mean, like, like I said, you know, the, the audience side of it, you know, when people like literally sometimes it's like, how do we approve the newsletter? They'll be like, Oh, stop selling things. I'm like, yeah. All right. Sorry. I'm not going to do that. Like <laughs> do you ever go into a Starbucks and say, you know, I wish this place didn't sell coffee. No.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that there's much hope for people that that just kind of feel that way. I think at a certain point, you know, the there's always a minority that is very vocal Mm. for whatever reason. And the majority is never that vocal. (laughs) I mean, if you look at Yelp and Amazon and everything else, it's like most ratings are people and people that take the time to fill something out is normally because they're pretty upset about something. They respond to something. It's because they're upset, not because they want to you know, gush about your product or service. It's very rare. Yeah. Um, So yeah, when I think about how many reviews I've left in my life, uh, I can probably count them on one hand. And some of them were asks first from a specific restaurant or something that I happen to be at. Mm -hmm. We're new, can you leave us a review or, but I don't really do that because I'm not that type of I don't know person that wants to kind of tear down the fundamentals of what somebody is doing. Yeah. I think if you're you're providing a good service and you feel confident about it and you're doing a good job and you're you know putting in the work, then you have every right to charge for that. And you're bringing value to other people. Mm-hmm. That's, that's completely within your right to to sell and to provide you know additional value or longevity for people that are in your community yeah.
0: let's talk um let's we'll bring this whole circle by talking about patience um, i think that to me one of the most fascinating things about the world that we live in you know you were talking about how you did this in 2005 and we started by talking about the fact that this would probably be easier to execute now than it would be in 2005 mm-hmm. but i think the you know, rapid rise of execution speed has also created incredibly unrealistic expectations in terms of how fast people expect to be successful, because you can start a blog and have the whole thing up and running in an hour. And then people are like, oh, well, nobody reads my blog. It's like, wait a minute, you've been doing this for a week.
2: (laughs) Yep. (laughs) absolutely i think that our our generation is very ubiquitous with this kind of on-demand mindset and i i talk about it in the book you know i have a whole section on patience where it's just like this is this is a marathon it's not a sprint and there's no app for a successful career it is really something that you have to mentally physically and emotionally prepare for and you have to prepare for the long haul if that's, you know, what you want to achieve. As far as I know, I have never seen one person that was a quote unquote overnight success uh, without at least putting 10 plus years on the back end that no one, <laughs> you know, they might blow up, but they've been doing it for X x amount of years, you know, um, it I think patience is absolutely imperative in this day and age because of the fact that everything else we can have on demand and people, again, the, the nonsense where it's like, this is, this is not, um, for me, or this is not successful because it hasn't turned a profit in the first year. Oh my goodness. Like that's that's part of the motivation for writing this book is to kind of give everyone a little bit of a reality check here and <laughs> like, hey, I've been in it and I've been in the trenches and I've been doing this for a really long time and I'm not saying I'm perfect and there are surely tons of mistakes and you can read about all of those too that I made in the process. But ultimately, I know a lot of other people that are entrepreneurs and that are creatives and that work in the creative field or have creative businesses and they echo my remarks. I have people that from the outside look like this, Mm. you know, glitzy, glam success story. And when we really have a real conversation where that's not filtered Mm. with their social media online, it's, it's amazing. The similar similarities that we all face and go through. And so, yeah, I, the the patient's thing is is absolutely something that any creative entrepreneur or business owner needs to take into account when they start this. And if they're not willing to be patient, have a five, 10 year plan or plan for any more than that, um, then it's very possible they shouldn't maybe even start (laughs) because it's a, it's a marathon. There's ups and there's downs and you have to be able, and I think most people learn this the hard way, to kind of stay s- steady between those ups and downs. You know, you can't get too high and you can't get too low. Well. There's going to be things that are amazing and celebratory and causes for celebration. There's going to be really shitty days, too. Yeah. And you got to be able to, um, you know, where everything is just going wrong. <laughs> My partner and I call it um, our pets' heads are falling off days yeah. from dumb and <laughs> wow! Um, it's like our pets' heads are falling off. Um, it's it's those, and that's just part of it. When you look at it as a whole, and I'd like to bring this back to something positive. I think when you look at it as a whole, it's ultimately a really beautiful thing, mm-hmm. and you get a lot of personal growth out of having a business of any sort. Um, If you're lucky, you get to employ people. You get to kind of share your own creative vision um, through the catalyst that is you and your employees and your company. So I think there's really, it's when you wrap it all together, it's really beautiful and zoom out from it, but it's, it's tough. It's one of the toughest things you can do. So if you don't have some extra strength patience, you're not going to make it. (laughs) You gotta, you gotta stay as steady as you can. Mm.
0: Awesome. Um, Well, this has been really, really um, thought-provoking and and interesting. Uh, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
2: Confidence. I think confidence in themselves and what they're doing.
0: Hmm. Amazing. (laughs) Um, Well, where can people find out more about you or your work and uh, everything that you're up to?
2: Yeah, you can go to h e i d i l u e r r a. H-E-I-D-I-L-U-E-R-R-A.com, and you can click to get to Amazon for The Work of art, which is my book, A No-Nonsense Field Guide for Creative Entrepreneurs, and also you can check out Raw at rawartists, and that's plural.com. Um, we take submissions from artists year-round.